This is Books for Breakfast, a podcast where we talk about books and writing. I'm Enda Wiley. And I'm Peter Sir. And you're all very welcome to this morning's show. Every word is the right word in the right place and the effect is resonant and deeply moving. A haunting, hopeful masterpiece. Astonishing, marvellous, exact and icy and loving all at once. A moral tale that is unsentimental and deeply affecting. These are just some of the responses to Claire Keegan's new book, Small Things Like These, just published by Faber and Faber. And this morning on Books for Breakfast, Peter and I are delighted to be in conversation with Claire Keegan. In October, there were yellow trees. Then the clocks went back the hour and the long November winds came in and blew and stripped the trees bare. In the town of New Ross chimneys threw out smoke, which fell away and drifted off in hairy, drawn-out strings before dispersing along the quays. And soon the river, barrow dark as stout, swelled up with rain. The people, for the most part, unhappily endured the weather, shopkeepers and tradesmen, men and women in the post office and the dole queue, the mart, the coffee shop and supermarket, the bingo hall, the pubs and the chipper, all commented in their own ways on the cold and what rain had fallen, asking what was in it and could there be something in it? For who could believe that there again was another raw cold day? Children pulled their hoods up before facing out to school, while their mothers, so used now to ducking their heads and running to the clothesline or hardly daring to hang anything out at all, had little faith in getting so much as a shirt dry before evening. And then the nights came on and the frosts took hold again and blades of cold slid under doors and cut the knees off those who still knelt to say the rosary. Down in the yard, Bill Furlong, the coal and timber merchant, rubbed his hands, saying if things carried on as they were, they would soon need a new set of tyres for the lorry. She's on the road every hour of the day, he told his men. They could soon be on the rims. And it was true. Hardly had one customer left the yard before another arrived in fresh on their heels or the phone rang with almost everyone saying they wanted delivery now or soon, that next week wouldn't do. Furlong sold coal, turf, anthracite, slack and logs. These were ordered by the hundredweight, the half hundredweight or the full ton or lorry load. He also sold bales of briquettes, kindling and bottled gas. The coal was the dirtiest work and had in winter to be collected monthly off the quays. Two full days it took for the men to collect, carry, sort and weigh it all out back in the yard. Meanwhile, the Polish and Russian boatmen were a novelty going about town in their fur caps and long buttoned coats with hardly a word of English. During busy times like these, Furlong made most of the deliveries himself, 
leaving the yard men to bag up the next orders and cut and split the loads of felled trees the farmers brought in. Through the mornings, the saws and shovels could be heard going hard at it. But when the Angelus bell rang at noon, the men laid down their tools, washed the black off their hands and went round to Kyo's, where they were fed hot dinners with soup and fish and chips on Fridays. The empty sack cannot stand, Mrs Kyo liked to say, standing behind her new buffet counter, slicing up the meat and dishing out the veg and mash with her long metal spoons. Gladly the men sat down to thaw out and eat their fill before having a smoke and facing back out into the cold again. And that was Claire Keegan reading from the opening chapter from her new book, Small Things Like These, published just this year by Faber and Faber. Claire Keegan was brought up on a farm in County Wicklow, the youngest of six children. Her stories have won numerous awards and have been translated into more than 20 languages. She currently holds the Brianus Staunton Fellowship at Cambridge. Claire's debut collection of stories, Antarctica, was published by Faber in 1999 and she was immediately hailed as a writer of exceptional talent. Antarctica was awarded the Rooney Prize for Literature and it was the Los Angeles Times Book of the Year. The Observer called these stories among the finest recently written in English. It was also awarded the William Trevor Prize, which was judged by William Trevor himself. In 2007, her second collection, Walk the Blue Fields, was published again to huge critical acclaim and went on to win the Edge Hill Prize, prize which was adjudicated by Hilary Mantel. Foster was published in 2010, won the Davy Burns Award, then the world's richest prize for a story, and was judged that year by Richard Ford. Keegan's stories have appeared in The New Yorker, Granta, The Paris Review, Best American Stories, have won numerous awards. She's also renowned as a teacher of creative writing. Claire Keegan's books have consistently received outstanding praise and rightly so. Foster was named in the Irish Times as one of the top 50 works of fiction to be published in the 21st century and it would be no surprise at all if Small Things Like These was also soon to be added to this list as it is a magnificent novella. The writer Richard Ford has previously praised Claire Keegan for her high wire act of uncommon virtuosity. A virtuosity which is apparent in spades in this recent fable of Clare's set in 1985 in New Ross, County Wexford. And it seems fitting too that Peter and I are here with Clare at the breakfast table this morning talking to her in the month of December as Small Things Like These is set in those weeks leading up to Christmas following as it does Bill Furlong, a coal and timber merchant doing his rounds during his busiest season but also encountering in that December of 1985 the complicit silence of a community controlled by the power of the Catholic Church. Honest, heartbreaking and unforgettable. It's a story steeped, as Frank McGuinness said, in the shock of human kindness. Small Things Like These is an absolutely riveting read. It's a book to read and savour over and over again. And we're absolutely thrilled to have its author here today. So Claire, you are very, very welcome to The Breakfast Table. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's great to have you. Well, to start off with, Bill Furlong, the Coleman in this book, he has a family of five daughters. And you you yourself, Claire, you grew up in a large family too. As Peter said earlier, you're the youngest of six children. And writers don't necessarily grow up in a household full of books. But I'm just wondering, were there books in your house and was it a household of readers? No, we, d- we really didn't have books. 
my parents left school. I think they were 13 and 14. And and nice. then they they started farming and had six children. So really, if there had been books, I don't know that there would have been much time to read them anyhow. Although my mother, my mother would have read whatever would have come in. But I, only, mm-hmm. I remember just a few books in the house we had. We had a Bible, which was unread, but I used to go down into the parlour and look at all the plates because they used to terrify me. You know, they had these beautiful coloured plates and Lazarus and, you know, St. John the Baptist, you know, his head on a plate and those things. And I I used to go down and I wasn't really supposed to be in the parlour. You know, a lot of houses had a room like that and I wasn't meant to be down there, but I used to go down there and look at those things. And we had a few Walter Mackins my sister brought home and my aunt used to come and, and leave Mills and Boons behind her. She she was great. She'd just read them in one sitting and say it was rubbish and then go buy another one and say the same thing. And apart from that, I mean, I just had ladybird books as, as a child. And, you know, people people think all the time that children should read. And I I don't disagree. But at the same time, maybe maybe not having anything to read enriches your imagination because I just didn't have TV and I didn't have anything to read. So I used to just go around up the wood and there was a wood all around the farm and imagine things. And and maybe maybe that was a good thing for a good way for for a writer to begin. Your stories are rooted in Ireland, but you left Ireland when you were just 17 years of age and you travelled to New Orleans, Louisiana to study English and politics at Loyola University. And um, do you think that this experience studying in the Deep South affected your development as a writer? Well, I'm, I'm sure it did because I had wonderful English teachers. I really did. And they introduced me to in, in, a, in a very sophisticated and unpretentious way to, I don't know, Chaucer and, you know, Fools and Shakespeare and, and John Donne. And I don't know, I remember reading the Crazy Jane poems and, and Crazy Jane telling the bishop, you know, that love has built its mansion in the place of excrement and nothing can be sold or a hole that has not been rent. And I just thought that's magical. We would never have found any, anything like that in secondary school. And and so I, I think I think it was the teachers there, and this book is in part dedicated to my professor, who was also my advisor at the time, Mary McKay, and she taught the first English course I attended there. I had to, as a, an American student, you have to f- fulfill something called a common curriculum, which means that you're not studying just your own subject, but you you have to have a, a knowledge, some general knowledge as well. And we had to take sciences and I studied probability and logic and evolution. And and so so one of the things we had to take was an English course. And so I took one and I just decided that I had to study English also as well as politics. So I I don't I don't know. I mean, who can say, but I don't know that I would have written had I had I not had the opportunity to study English. Yeah, it sounds like a marvellous experience. And one of the most remarkable things about the book is its portrait of Bill Furlong. He's a coal man. As I just said, he's a father of five girls. He's husband to Eileen with her practical, agile mind. He's an ordinary, hardworking man. But he has his own history. He's a man with an unresolved past, if you like. And that past keeps seeping into the present. 
You tell us he came from nothing less than nothing. He never knew his father. He's brought up in the house of the Protestant widow whose, whose mother was a domestic servant for. But you bring this world to life so powerfully, Claire, evoking all the details of the Coleman's work as well. The hard, dirty work, the groaning truck with the failing engine. It's just it's just amazing what you've got into the world and you've, of, of Bill Furlong and you're seeing it from his point of view. Was it hard to get inside the skin of this coal man? Well, I think it was, but I find that natural. I, I'm, my, I, I'm not actually a natural writer. I don't write easily. Um, sometimes I'd send an email off to somebody and they'd send me back a perfectly articulate email, which could be two pages long in half an hour. And it would take, it'd take me, you know, at least three hours maybe to write something like that. So, but I, I didn't... I didn't expect anything about writing to be easy. One of the loveliest things I think that happened to me was when um, when I started writing, I read the Writers at Work interviews in from the Paris Review. You know, they were accepted and published on their own. And everybody in there, in one way or another, said they found yeah. it very difficult. And I just thought, that's great. It's just like everything else then. It's going to be difficult if you, and if you want to say something freshly in the English language or in any other language about what it means to be human and have it stand up and lie down aesthetically kind of at the same time, that's, that's never going to be easy. So I, I simply accepted that when, when I was young and, and I think teaching creative writing also gave me the chance to, and the challenge of articulating why something doesn't work. Sarah, I'm wondering what, you know, what, what triggers a story for you? I mean, small things like these is a story, I mean, it gets into the mind and the life of Bill Furlong, as Enda has just said. And it also addresses the issue of the, the Magdalene laundries and the thousands of, of women who were, as you say in the note on the text, concealed, incarcerated and forced to labour in these institutions. And I'm just wondering, was that at the centre of your mind as you conceived the story or did that emerge kind of during the course of the writing? Well, I, I certainly wouldn't have had any agenda when I begin working on anything and I would hope it would just turn into what it needs to be and that I would have the patience to find out what, what that is and to listen rather than force any opinion on it, on anything or anyone. But I, I was intrigued by, you know, what do we do with the knowledge that we cannot bear? I'm really interested in, it just seems that a friend of mine said to me when I was really young, she said, you know, some, there's no box in your mind for some things that happen to you. There's nowhere to put them. And I, I, was, I was intrigued by, by what this man would do with the knowledge, with the experience with, he had in, in the book at the convent. And, and how, do, how do you then carry on? And, and can you carry on and do nothing? And can you do something and carry on? And if so, what do you do? And how able are we? And how do how do we cope? And and I felt that Ireland was very much then in the stranglehold of the Catholic Church and its backwardnesses and its misogyny and its unchecked power. And I I having grown up in that society, I suppose I I wound up through mm-hmm. this book mm-hmm. saying something about it. Mm-hmm. And 
and I, I suppose I, I may have wound up saying something about how difficult it was to be Christian in Catholic Ireland. Indeed, and I, I'm mindful also of the fact that the first thing that we encounter in, as a reader is a, an extract from the 1916 proclamation, the Irish Republic is entitled to and hereby claims the allegiance of every Irish man and Irish woman. The Republic guarantees religious and civil liberty, equal rights and equal opportunities to all its citizens and, and so forth. And I was wondering, I mean, that idealistic set of aspirations kind of, it's almost like an ironic commentary on the society that was actually achieved. It's kind of like a disconnect that we're acutely aware of in, in this story is, would you say, isn't that the case, Claire? Well, th- that quotation concludes with with the words cherishing all of the children of the nation equally. And it just feels like something that's passed around as an actual postcard. I mean, it is an actual postcard. And I was in I was in Dublin there in the summer and I saw it written on, on the side of a wall outside of, of a pub, you know, it was painted onto the wall. And and I think it's held up as 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 almost as an advertisement sometimes for for Ireland of the saints and scholars. But I mean, we we treat, we we treated children, women and children horribly in our republic. We created ourselves, and and I I suppose I I wanted to put that there, and and maybe maybe have it be read in a in a new light or in a in a different light i'm not a patriot and i'm not a nationalist i just think i just see them as forms of chauvinism and so um i i just wanted to have a take take another look at at what we promised and what we made and i know that it's a hundred years today since um since the anglo since the treaty was signed the Republic. Clara, it's a book set in the 1980s and I enjoyed reading because it was a decade I remember so well. I was a student at the time. The divorce, the abortion referendum failed to be passed in 83 and 86. Our young people were emigrating. There was no work. The church and the state were, as you said, dangerously hand in hand. It was a really tough time to live in Ireland. And the Ireland you your book describes, it's a tight, closed, small town society dominated by the church and people's fear of going against it or being seen to oppose it. And there's a pressure in the book. Um, well, I felt anyway, a moral pressure. As you said earlier, what's he going to do when faced with a really horrific realisation of what's going on in the convent? And during the summer, I heard you talking to writing students over from America and you said that when writing a story, put someone in deep water physically and Bill Furlong, he certainly does find himself in deep water, doesn't he? And this is one of the dilemmas, isn't it? The the main dilemmas of the book. Well, I, I think that every central character is in deep water physically. If you're if you're a central character, you can't be having a good time most of the time. Or or at least the books I in the books I like, you cannot be. And Yes, I, I think he is. And 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 I do think that people, you know, I, I teach creative writing and people have a tendency to analyse what is going on instead of to physically portray what is going on. And and um, and that we are we are, first of all, physical. All our feelings are in our bodies. And I'm, I'm constantly teaching that, that I don't actually want an analysis or or I'm not I'm really not interested in themes. I'm interested in how people cope, how people sleep, how people eat or don't eat. Or, you know, he's he's a man I discovered who, who can't sit still. He finds it very difficult to sit still. So whatever is at him makes him keep going. And, and I think that's why he's out on the lorry all of the time. 
I tried to, you know, I tried to keep him in the prefab because he owns the place, but he's not actually able to sit still. That that wasn't, and none of that was plausible. And I, I realized he just needs to be to be on the go. So I had to go with him. <laughs> no, just go with him. <laughs> one one of the one of the things that's really noticeable for me <clears throat> reading it is, is that there's an, there's an almost unbearable tension in 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 the story. I mean, it's kind of, and it's the tension that interests me as like like as a, as a reader. I don't mean drama, but just a tension, just a just a like he's going about his ordinary life, but there's all these kind of pressures on him. There's the you know the rush to get the coal from the keys, the rush to get it out, the you know the the, the truck that's that's about to collapse, it seems. And then there's the pressure from his past. There's, there's kind of all kinds of pressure from the the expectation to behave in certain ways. And it's just, you have this sense of, of great emotional kind of tension that's constantly building up. I mean, there's one point, for instance, where Furlong arrives at the gate of the of the coal yard and he finds that the padlock is, is frozen. And there's this sentence, when he reached the yard gate and found the padlock seized with frost, he felt the strain of being alive. And you really feel that strain and, and tension. And likewise, later when we read, of late, he was inclined to imagine another life. And I'm just wondering, I mean, do you think good writing needs to have that kind of element of strain or tension to kind of to to make it work? I I do. From my own reading taste, I do feel that. I'm I'm really not interested in drama. I think most of drama, or if it goes on for any length of time, is really dull and boring. Tension is a different thing, and it comes from a different place. Tension tension comes from loss, and I think all good stories are are narratives circling around and then going into people losing something. And of course, life is full of loss and there isn't anything at all that we cannot lose. And in the end, we lose everything. We are bound to lose everything. So you could say the story of life is the story of loss and that narrative hopefully you know, has, has something to say about that and how we cope with that and how we accept it or cannot mm-hmm. accept it or cannot mar- manage it or how it affects our relationships with the people we live with or the people we love or the people we've lost or the people we imagine. And and so, yes, I'm, I'm very pleased and I find that a, a huge compliment to, to say that you didn't feel much drama in it at all because it's something I like to avoid and, and that you you felt the tension in the prose and the tension for him. To me, it is the story of a man breaking down. I know, I know, that, I know that it is also seen as a story of heroism and I don't disagree with that and anyway it's not up to me to disagree or agree it's 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 the reader's book now but I I do see him breaking down I see I see him as somebody who is trying to stay ahead of what he feels and that the past is catching up on him and and he's he's not able to keep going the way he used to keep going and and he's going to be forty next year, and Christmas, Christmas is coming, and and I I feel that whatever shield he's wearing is growing a bit thinner. Speaking of Christmas, I mean, there's a sense in which you know small things like these is is kind of a Christmas fable in a way. I mean, I mean, he's Bill Furlong is, is disappointed as a child when he gets a gift of a Christmas carol because he'd he'd wanted a, a jigsaw. And, you know, I suppose he wanted to know who his father was. And as an adult, mm-hmm. he tells his wife that he wants David Copperfield as a Christmas present. And, you know, no accident fair. There's a kind of a Dickensian um, sort of feel to mm-hmm. it. Is that conscious? Or? Well, I mean, everything I did was deliberate in the, in the book. You know, it's all, it's all yeah. deliberately put in there and considered. And, 
and whatever mistakes are in there, you know, are, are all my own. But I, uh, I haven't read Dickens, you see. So um, to my shame, I just haven't haven't read Dickens, and I haven't read Proust either. So I'm going to try and do something about that this year. But but. Oh, well, well, clearly, but, yeah. Peter's been reading oh, Bruce recently, haven't you, Peter? <laughs> yeah, well, I haven't. I haven't well, I'm, 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 in, I'm, 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 I'm kind of in the middle of it. But I was also thinking because, because one of the thing, one of the things about that Christmas thing is about is like the weather. The, the relentless cold. It's almost like an extra character and it, it reminded me actually of Foster when the heat, the unwanted yeah. heat is like an, an extra character in the in the story and here it's the cold, the relentless cold, which is very much part of, of, of the of the atmosphere. But anyway, like uh, the other thing I suppose, speaking of Dickens, I mean the, the other, <clears throat> I mean the other writer I suppose that, that I'm put in mind of would be you know, people like, like Chekhov or McGahern or Carver or Eudora Welty, I mean writers who I suppose so freshly have a great insight reveal the lives of the characters and, and, and with great nuance too and I wonder are these writers that have inspired your work or what writers do you look to for inspiration and, and guidance? Well I think you've named some of my favourite writers there I just love I just love Eudora Welty and Eudora Welty wrote a wonderful essay on Chekhov it's in a book called The Eye of the Story and one of the things she said about Chekhov is that Chekhov would never dream of making a point of anyone and I think that's the type of fiction I really dislike. It's where it's where a character is used as almost a cardboard vehicle to make the author's point. And um, none of us is that. No one of us is is a point. You know, we have we have lives, and I I try to ask myself if the prose is all right. You know, would it be all right if this was you? If this was the language that was used, would it be fair? But yes, I just love Chekhov. And one of the things Chekhov said in a letter, I think to his brother Alexander, he said that grace is when you make the least number of movements between two points. And I read that and I thought, oh, isn't that so beautiful? Because I I love how light-handed he is and how, how athletic his imagination is. And I think he also had great faith in the imagination that, that it would meet his needs. And I think it does. I think, you know, language is older and richer than we are. And if we are patient and we really want it and we're looking for it and we go beyond ourselves and don't think about ourselves as writers, but think about, well, in this case, just being a coal man coming up to Christmas in that set of circumstances, that it will somehow meet you in in that place. But yes, all of the, and I, I really like Turgenev and of course McGarren and um, William Trevor and Emily Dickinson and Elizabeth Bishop. I've, I read a, I read a lot of poetry and, and still read poetry uh, every week and it means a lot to me. And the work of Louis McNeese has meant a lot to me uh, over the years and Philip Larkin and and so and, and Kavanagh and and I've been uh, studying Dubliners this year as well, which which was wonderful, wonderful thing to do. So I think I'm just freshly struck all the time by how magical reading is. It just feels like a magical thing to be able to do that and find what these people have written. And, you know, they're dead and still so many of them and, and still they've left these stories and these poems behind. And it's 
Um, it's just a beautiful fact that you can go and read them. Oh, Claire, you want me to go straight off now and start reading? They're all my favourite writers as well, by the way. So I'm completely <laughs> connected with you there. Well, talking of McGarren, he said that all good writing is suggestion and all bad writing is a statement. And I think that kind of fits into what you were just saying there. But small things like these, it very much veers on the side of suggestion. Um, at the end of the book, he's Bill Furlong's coming home on Christmas Eve night. He could feel a world of trouble waiting for him. And you don't tell us what's going to happen next. But as readers, we're left to imagine the book's end. What next is going to happen? Imagining the dangers that lie ahead for Bill Furlong and his family. And Sean O'Hagan, when he was writing about Foster in The Guardian, he said that the sparseness of the form in your writing extends from the writer to the reader and allows all that is not said to hold sway in uh, in the imagination. And uh, I mean, just listening to you there, you, uh, you really believe in having faith in the power of the imagination. It's important to you as a writer, isn't it? It's not only important to me as a writer, it's it's very important to me in regarding the reader. Yeah. I also have great faith in the reader's imagination. Mm-hmm. And and that, you know, when when I'm when I'm really reading, I, I can't or doing anything really, I can't bear to be micromanaged. Yeah. If you if you kind of present it to me and and, and show me something and leave it to me, I'll, I'll probably be fine. But if you want to tell me what I need to do, you know, and, and kind of take over, I, I, I just can't bear it. I'm not able for that. I'm genuinely not able for that. So so I really try not to do that for or to, I should say, to my reader, so so that they themselves are are left uh, to put it together. And, and it seems to me that the type of writing I like is the writing where it says just enough. Yeah. To me, enough is elegance. And of course, you have to decide what enough is. Um, but it seems to me that a lot of things in life, you know, which are, are elegant, have to do with being just enough. Like a good conversation is where you said just enough and just enough was said to you. And probably the best meals I ate were, were the ones where I ate just enough or um, there, yeah. There's something about that which, in our capitalist world, where we are told that we should have more, and you know, if you buy two, you can get another one free, and you know, your kind of questions at, at the cash cash out was, why don't you buy another one so you can get another one? And it's all more and more, and and I, I, I'm really interested in prose or any writing, any in any genre where the author chooses really well and and chooses a few things and then puts them to good use and uh, and i i find i find that to be the most the most elegant prose and there and it doesn't interfere with style yeah i mean it, it really it really doesn't you can have any style yeah, and still true. i think make that work for you you can you can write a 600 page novel and still have said just enough i think it, it's not about the shortness. It's not about the length yeah. of it. But that kind of reminds me of Alistair MacLeod when he was asked, you know, he didn't publish that many books, but he just said, I write when when I have something to say as well, which I thought was a great answer. But speaking of the imagination, I, I often think, I was a teacher for years and I often think children have buckets of it. They just have a natural flair to writing and they have fun with it. But could you just speak a little bit more about that? Does writing come naturally to you? Do you, fun, do you have fun writing? I don't know, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, or you said earlier it's 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 a hard one thing, I suppose. But do you enjoy it as well? Oh, I do very very much, very much so, very much so. And of course, I I think my writing is much funnier than anybody else does. I I kind of have inside jokes with myself over things which aren't apparent on the page, and and. Uh, I do very much. And, and also I'm constantly reminded of how it's not hard at all. You know, if you, if, you, if you want hard, we'll get a shovel and go out and dig a hole. Go and dig a grave in a, in a graveyard on frozen ground. Now we're, in, now we're into hard work. This is, this is not hard. This is, this is really privileged work. But I do think that making it fine and finding, finding your best work takes patience and perseverance and... And um, I don't, um, I, I, I don't find it easy. And no, I'm, I'm, I don't know that I'm a natural writer. I don't know that I even believe in, in that there is such a thing, having read those writers at work interviews. I don't know that, that it is, you know, natural or comes easily, comes easily to anyone. Even if you hit something kind of and have a stroke of luck and, and find something quickly, it's probably because you've been imagining it or thinking about it or, or maybe trying to write about it in some other way with great difficulty. And it just appeared and turned around and turned into something else after that. So no, I, I, I do. I, I, there, I mean, I was, I was brought up on a farm and, and, you know, my parents really didn't have it easy. My father was born in 1916, my mother in 1926, and they both went to school, you know, until they were about 13 or 14, I think, and um, actually went to the fields to work. And, you know, I, I, I just sometimes compare, cannot help comparing my life and what I have now to theirs. And, and really, this isn't difficult at all. Sarah, last question. You're an acclaimed teacher of writing and you run writing courses. And in the acknowledgements to your book, you also thank your students. I mean, does teaching inspire you? Without doubt. It not only inspires me, it engages me. I don't think I've, I don't think I've ever gone to teach a workshop and wished I was doing something else. And that's extraordinary. I made a promise to myself when I was a child. My, my parents used to go to a place in Shalala to go dancing. They weren't drinkers. You know, they'd have a class or something, but they used to go to dance. And my mother used to love chatting to people after the music stopped. And she, we lived up a lane on a farm and it was, you know, it was a bit lonesome for her there. She didn't drive. So she used to chat to people down there after the music stopped. And I used to sit and all these men would be leaning against the bar. And so many of them were drunk and it was the 80s. And they hated what they were doing or they mm. couldn't find work that they wanted or any work. And I remember promising myself that I'd get a job I liked. And I think I feel that every time I teach a workshop, that I, I go, you know, I go into work being so pleased that I can that I can do this and have the privilege of arguing sometimes for a full day in one way or another, for or against. Um, paragraph structure, usually, is what it comes down to narrative and paragraph structure. And I think, isn't that just lovely that there's so many people who really are interested in that and really want to write? And and some, you know, I, I often teach women, middle-aged women, you know, women women my age. And, and, um, and that's lovely because they're there because they really want to be there, because they've chosen to be there. And some of them have raised their families and come back to learning in a different way, in an entirely different way, and really want to write. And and so I've I've just had I've just had the privilege of being able 
to teach for half my life now. And uh, I, I cannot say that I found it anything, anything but fine for, for the vast majority of the time. That's really lovely to hear. Mm. I get smitten by it too as well, Claire. I love teaching, going mm. in, teaching poetry. It's it's a fantastic thing. I think it was Maya Angelou said, if you if you have, give, and if you know, teach. So it's it's a good thing, I think, because you're kind of giving as well. And it's a, the great community spirit there too. But anyway, Peter, do you think it would be lovely to hear, Claire? Yeah, we had to, yeah to end maybe with another, another extract from small things like these. It'd be lovely to hear, Claire. Thanks. Christmas was coming. Already a handsome Norway spruce was put standing in the square beside the manger, whose nativity figures that year had been freshly painted. If some complained over Joseph looking overly colourful in his red and purple robes, the Virgin Mary was met with general approval, kneeling passively in her usual blue and white. The brown donkey, too, looked much the same standing guard over two sleeping yos in the crib where, on Christmas Eve, the figure of the infant Jesus would be placed. The custom was for people to gather there on the first Sunday of December outside the town hall after dark to see the lights coming on. The afternoon stayed dry, but the cold was bitter, and Eileen made the girls zip up their anoraks and wear gloves When they reached the centre of town, the pipe band and carol singers had already assembled, and Mrs Keogh was out with a stall selling slabs of gingerbread and hot chocolate. Joan, who had gone on ahead, was handing out carol sheets with other members of the choir, while the nuns walked around, supervising and talking to some of the more well-off parents. It was cold standing around, so they walked about the side streets for a while before sheltering in the recessed doorway of Hanrahan's, where Eileen paused to admire a pair of navy patent shoes and a matching handbag, and to chat with neighbours and others she seldom saw, who had come from farther out, taking the opportunity to draw and share what news they carried. Before long, an announcement was made over the speaker, inviting everyone to assemble. The councillor, wearing his brasses over a crumby coat, got out of a Mercedes and made a short speech before a switch was flipped and the lights came on. Magically then, the streets seemed to change and come alive under the long strands of multicoloured bulbs which swayed pleasantly in the wind above their heads, the crowd made soft little splashes of applause, and soon the band piped up. But at the sight of the big fat Santa coming down the street, Loretta stood back anxious and began to cry. There's no harm, for long assured. She's just a man like myself, only in costume. While other children queued up to visit Santa in the grotto and collect their presents, Loretta stood in tight and held on to Furlong's hand. There's no need to go if you don't want a Lanif, Furlong told her. Stay here with me. But it cut him all the same, to see one of his own so upset by the sight of what other children craved. And he could not help but wonder 
if she'd be brave enough or able for what the world had in store. That evening when they got home, Eileen said it was well past time they made the Christmas cake. Good-humouredly, she took down her Odlum's recipe and got furlong to cream a pound of butter and sugar in the brown delft bowl with the hand mixer while the girls grated lemon rind, weighed and chopped candied peel and cherries, soaked whole almonds in boiled water and slipped them from their skins. For an hour or so, they raked through the dried fruit, picking stalks out of sultanas, currants and raisins, while Eileen sifted the flour and spice, beat up bantam eggs and greased and lined the tin, wrapping the outside with two layers of brown paper and tying it tight with twine. Furlong took charge of the Rayburn, putting on tidy little shovelfuls of anthracite and regulating the draft to keep the oven low and steady for the night. When the mixture was ready, Eileen pushed it into the big square tin with a wooden spoon, smoothing it out on the top before giving the base a few hard bangs to get it all into the corners, laughing a little. But no sooner was it in the oven, with the door closed, than she took stock of the room and told the girls to clear down so she could get on and start the ironing. Why don't she write your letters to Santa now? Always it was the same, for a long thought. Always they carried mechanically on, without pause, to the next job at hand. What would life be like, he wondered, if they were given time to think and reflect over things? Might their lives be different, or much the same, or would they just lose the one of themselves? Even while he'd been creaming the butter and sugar, his mind was not so much upon the here and now, and on this Sunday... Nearing Christmas with his wife and daughters, so much is on tomorrow, and who owed what, and how, and when he'd deliver what was ordered, and what man he'd leave to which task, and how and where he'd collect what was owed, and before tomorrow was coming to an end, he knew his mind would already be working in much the same way, yet again, over the day that was to follow. Thank you, Claire. And that was Claire Keegan reading from Small Things Like These, her new book, Just Out from Faber. It's an absolutely outstanding book and gift for Christmas. And as usual, all details of this book will be available on www.booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. And I think all that's left to say now is to thank you, Claire, for coming into Books for Breakfast. It was great to have you at the breakfast table. So thank you. Thank you so much and happy Christmas. Happy Christmas, everyone. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Claire. We, I think we've reached the end of our Books for Breakfast podcast this morning. I'm definitely rushing off to have more coffee. And I'm Enda Wiley and I have Peter Sarah here with me. And Peter, would you like to tell everyone about the details of the podcast if they'd like to listen again? Well, you can subscribe at all the usual sources, Google and Apple and so on. And if you want to check out the notes that go along with this podcast, you can go to booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. And yeah, so... We'll be back again. We'll have the toast on. We'll have the kettle boiling. We will have more books to discuss. And we're looking forward to having you here. So goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.